0: So if you grab a Bible uh, and turn to page 261 and we pick up the story of Samuel, I'm hoping that your Bible has now got a sort of automatically open at the spot uh, stage because we've been in 2 Samuel now for, uh, we'll be soon getting on for a year, but uh, 2 Samuel, we've done one Samuel, now we're at 2 Samuel, chapter 10, page 261, let me read to you all 18 verses. After this, the king of the Ammonites died and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally or kindly with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan their lord, Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Markah with a 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehob and the men of Tob and Markah were by themselves in the open country when Joab saw that the battle was set against him both in front and in the rear he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians the rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai his brother and he arrayed them against the Ammonites and he said If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadadezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. And they came to Helam, which show back the commander of the army of Hadadezer, at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel and David killed the Syrians, the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen and wounded Shobak, the commander of their army, so that he died there. I mean, all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. But that's what we're going to be looking at, that story in our Bible study today, and I think our children are going to be studying that in their little group so if Natalie leads them away the table is all set up for them I can see and the rest of us keep page 261 open because we'll be very very closely looking at what was written there and what we've just read okay so there we go now as they head off to their little group uh not bad to come at this part of the Bible with a question, and that is, what is your view of God? Or maybe more importantly, where does your view of God come from? A lot of people will say, well, lots of different places, really, because if you've got another religion that you follow, well, there are so different religions. They all have their holy books, and a lot of people's view comes from their holy books, and they get information about God from there. I guess if you're a white Brit, we tend not to do holy books all that well. We kind of get our Bible stuff or our God stuff from the beeb. So the latest BBC documentary will give you Professor Flannel with uh, the latest uh, stone that he's discovered, which has a particular funny shape. And he'll draw all his uh, knowledge about God from there and tell you why that's more convincing than any book. So either you get your book, uh, your, 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 your God picture from the Beeb or from the books, but certainly there are so many theories of what God is like. And people keep asking us, don't they, how do we know which one's right? But let me make it nice and easy for you because this part of the Bible tells us that either we'll get our view of God from the Bible... Or, we will get it out of our own heads. And we will make it up as we go along. And we'll see that happening in 2 Samuel chapter 10. Where, we do learn good things about God. And the three good things we learn about God is that he is kind, that he is patient, and that he is also king. Let's start with the first one. That God's king is kind. Now, I'm using that language, God's king, when I'm talking about King David, who you read about in this part of the Bible, because I'm trying to say in a nutshell what we've been learning about David all the way through 1 and 2 Samuel, and that is that David is God's king and is here in the Bible as a little picture, a miniature of what the Lord Jesus is going to be like when he comes. So when you say King David is kind, well, what you're going to be looking at is that that's a small little version of how Jesus will be when he comes. David is there in the Bible to show us what the bigger king will be like when God's king comes in his son. And it's certainly true that David is kind. Uh, uh, Hannah in her children's slot helpfully told us about uh, a story we learnt here in 2 Samuel chapter 9, the Sunday before Easter, when we discovered that uh, God's king had been kind to a cripple in his own kingdom called Mephibosheth. And you remember the story how God was amazingly kind to this cripple and looks after him so well that's within his own kingdom but now you pick up chapter 10 and verse 1, that was chapter 9 now you pick up chapter 10 verse 1 and you see that David is going to be kind to the Ammonites and therefore when uh, Nahash dies David sends uh, kind uh, messages to his son Hanan who's left in his bereavement there and David wants to comfort him. And so you see how this, kind of, this, this king is kind, not just to people who are in his own kingdom, but kind to those outside his kingdom as well. So if you were to use the language of politics today, his domestic policy and his foreign policy are both of one piece and both point to his kindness but the important thing is these Ammonites actually when he said that David is kind to them he's actually being kind to his enemies because if you were here around a while back and have a memory like an elephant you remember that Nahash the person who's spoken about in verse 2 is the very same Nahash the nasty we read about in 1 Samuel chapter 11, the guy who the previous king before David saw had to rescue a whole town from his nastiness. And yet it seems that he has actually been kind to David or dealt loyally with David. Don't quite know in what way he might have done that, but it could well be that he was getting Saul off David's back on one of the occasions when Saul was trying to kill David, and it may be that that was the kindness that he showed to David at that time. certainly wasn't a very big kindness, because it's not mentioned very much. We don't know exactly what it was. But anyway, for that little kindness, there is big kindness from David, even towards his enemies. And he is uh, dealing carefully with them. The only problem is that they look at that kindness and they say, "Nah, David's not being kind. He is just being cunning. You know what he's really after, don't you? He's here to spy out the place. Oh, forget the condolences. He's just here to conquer. He's going to be overthrowing the city if uh, you uh, don't spot his scheme in verse 3. That's what he's really here to do. And so this amazing kindness of God's king is taken as something very different. It's crafty. It's uh, to conquer rather than to be kind. Now I might say, where do you think they would have got that from? Why would they go and think such a thing about this kind king who turns up? With messengers to comfort their king who has lost his dad and the answer is that if we don't accept what the Bible tells us about God's king we will dream up our own ideas about him taken from what we would carry in our own heads in other words this is what they would do if they had half a chance to go and take over another country if they could And now what they're doing is they're projecting what they think they would do onto what God's king will do. The idea doesn't come from God's kindness. It comes from their own cunning and craftiness and deception. And they project that onto God's king. Now that's exactly what they did with Jesus. And what people still do with Jesus. No, we're not having this uh, picture given to us of Jesus being kind. No, we think he's out to control you. That's really what all these Christians are after. They're not coming here to tell you that uh, there's a kind God. They're here to tell you there's a controlling God. That's how uh, what what, what Christianity is really about and the kindness of the king is set aside for the delusions of man that they project onto the kindness of the king. But the king is kind. Second point is that the king is patient because look what David does about these guys who misunderstand him so badly. Does he strike them? Does he conquer them as, he, as they fear he will? He does nothing instead, actually, what happens is more kindness if you think about it. First, there is kindness towards those envoys that David sent to comfort king Hanun and it is very striking, isn't it they have been hugely humiliated uh, in those days. You grew your beard. Uh, as a sign of dignity now when you shave off half a beard it has the opposite effect it leaves you looking ridiculous and then of course what happens when you cut off your clothes at the waist leaving the lower half of you exposed how humiliating and what does David do for his envoys have been treated in that way he shows nothing but kindness to them. If you think about it, he's really treating them like kings. Because remember, he sent messages to Hanan to treat him like a king. And now he's sending messengers to the men who've been humiliated. In other words, he's giving them the same treatment, saying, look, why didn't you go and spend time in this place? so that your beards grow back your dignity returns and then you can be presented to me in my court as you were before in your full stature and position that's pure Jesus isn't it really Uh, the Lord Jesus doesn't treat us and expose our shame publicly but privately on the cross he pays he treats us God treats us like his son and he Sets puts into place all that we need to be reclothed in our dignity, so we might be presented to him with his dignity as uh, we we should be in his sight. God is very kind towards his or God's king is very kind towards his envoys in this case, but also he is actually very kind to his enemies because he doesn't strike back and wreak his revenge on them. Now this would be a really good point, wouldn't it, for Hannon and crew to say, boy, we got this badly wrong. And to throw themselves on God's mercy and say, David, we have made such a big mistake. Please, could you find in your heart to not treat us the way we deserve? Instead, what do they do? They go and they accelerate in the wrong direction. They gather mercenary forces to come at David and to attack him because they see that there's been a stench in verse 6. This would be a great time to throw themselves on David's kindness because he hasn't retaliated. It would be a good time for them in the way of the Bible to repent and to come to him for mercy but no they throw everything they can find at him and so when David mobilizes his army it's actually limited mobilization in uh, um, uh, verse 7 he sends Joab with just the mighty men he hasn't activated all Israel yet that will come later we'll see But at this stage it's a limited mobilisation and as you look at this chapter you see all the aggression comes from the other side. David is really slow to get fighting and yet they've arrayed this huge army against him and Sir Joab is sent out with his brother to meet them. Now what the enemy does is it has the Ammonites uh, by their city, and then the Syrians that they've hired in, they're out uh, in the open field, open country, so David's forces are caught in the middle, and therefore the battle plan is to crush them with an attack front and back. And it clearly is a threat, because Joab is not confident in what the outcome will be. He tells his brother Abishai, look, if they get uh, too much for you, I'll come over and help you, and if the Syrians get too much for me, I'm looking to you to come and help. Um, You kind of wonder what might have happened if they were both strong on both angles and how they would have coped with that, but clearly they are working out a battle plan. But it is interesting that their battle plan is both tactical and trusting. First, tactical, because Joab, being a fairly decent commander himself, takes his best men and puts them against the Syrians. In other words, has them fighting the mercenaries. If you're up against professional soldiers, you need people who are especially good in the art of warfare. And so that's what David does. He chooses, in verse 9, some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai's brother, And he raided them against the Ammonites. They're the home team. And uh, he's confident that Abishai would be able to uh, play them and win. But while he is getting his tactics right, it is interesting to see how he is trusting as well. Not just tactics, but trust. Because he then goes on to say, Be of good courage, and be courageous for our people and citizens of God and may the Lord do what seems good to him. Again, he doesn't tell God what he's got to do. Well, we're definitely going to win now because God's on our side. And in fact, when you hear someone speak like this and say, well, let God do what is good in his sight, we might just want to take him away and scold him for not believing enough, for his lack of faith. Come on, jab! this is God you're talking about, of course you're going to win. But I want to suggest to you that actually God is perfectly happy with this kind of prayer. Let God do what is good for him because certainly it doesn't stop God giving him a very easy win. That's exactly what happens. So God clearly doesn't disapprove of Joab talking about him in that way. And I want to suggest actually it needs more faith for us to trust God to define what is good and then to have the power to execute what is good, rather than us feeling, no, we've got to be the ones that tell God what he's got to do in the name it or claim it kind of way that a lot of people tell us uh, faith is uh, wanting us to do. And so they trust, and so they win. And yet again, you see, can you see the patience? Because after they win in verse 14, what do they do? Do they go and tear the city apart? No. Joab returns from fighting against the Ammonites and comes back to Jerusalem. So he does what he has to do, and then he's gone home again. It's not like the full anger of David is going to be expressed at this stage. God is kind. God and God's king is patient but God's king thirdly is king and that's what the Syrians find when they in verse 15 decide to gather themselves together again you wonder why why they're going to do this I mean hasn't God's king shown them that he wins his battles no, it is crazy, isn't it? That some people think that, yeah, okay, those guys lost, but I'm going to be, it's going to be different with me. Maybe that my troops didn't fight so well when they were commanded by Helen. After all, what does he know about warfare? He's only just become king. I know what I'll do. I'll get a seasoned veteran in there, Shobak, the commander of my army. Well, he'll lead. We'll get a few extra Syrians too from across the Euphrates, and this time, We'll go on the war path and David is not going to be able to do a thing about us. We are going to overwhelm him like he's never uh, been overwhelmed before. And again, the threat level is sufficiently high for David to gather all Israel this time, not just the the mighty men. This time there's a a full gathering of uh, everybody in verse 17 at the bottom of the page. When it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and he himself is leading the army this time. He crossed the Jordan and he came to Elam. And again, there is this huge war to be fought. But it is fought and it is very easily won, isn't it? And this time, finally, you get sufficient uh, casualty numbers to be recorded. This time there is a mass defeat. There are thousands of people who are now killed because they took on God's king. It's a complete game changer for uh, the Syrians because from now on they are a spent force they are a defeated force they make peace with Israel become subject to them and they are never going to go out to help the Ammonites ever again this has been massively uh, decisive previously at the end of the first battle at the end of verse 14 there was no major bloodbath but now you've got the casualties that came up against God's king and lost, and significantly lost. And you might say, why is there this craziness? Why is it that when it is so obvious that God's king is not going to be defeated, why is it that people are going to come and attempt a fresh onslaught against him? Why is the history of the world like this? that time after time after time people try and put down God's king and conquer him and find that they lose why is it that they want to return why, why is it they think that this time for them it'll be different and that, that is the history of our world isn't it and that is the history that we're going to be going through because it's a repeat that doesn't stop and the next wave comes well God's king is kind God's king is patient, God's king is still king, and he is king. The Syrians might think they'll win, but the Bible promises us the end of the story will be that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. What's that got to teach us today? Well, maybe that you're someone who's just uh, thinking through Christian things, Uh, and you're at the start of doing that, what can we learn? Well, it is a major, major lesson, isn't it, that God's king is kind. I think it is the most important lesson to start with, that we need to get right. Because right from the Garden of Eden, the thought comes into our minds that God isn't like that, but actually he is. But we need to be absolutely clear about this one thing. But God's kindness always has got a purpose to it. You know what the kindness of God is meant to lead to? Well, keep your finger in page 261 and turn to page 940 and to Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. And you will see where the kindness of God is meant to lead us. Page 940 Romans chapter 2 verse 4 Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. That's where God's kindness is meant to lead. Please do not let it lead you anywhere else. Please let it not lead anyone to thinking that God is kind. I can do what I want and it will always be well with me because God is kind. No. Read the very next verse. Verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God's kindness doesn't lead you to repentance. Then your rejection of that will lead to his wrath. It is so important that we get God right. Now we might think, well, that sounds, God's not really kind. He sounds a bit like a bully because what he's saying is I'll be kind to you and if you don't like my kindness, well, watch what's coming to you next. Sounds like a threat to me, but actually it's the consequence of getting God wrong that we're talking about. Because if God, the ruler of this universe, is kind, and we refuse to accept that he is, my friend, can I ask you, what greater insult can we throw in the face of God than to think of God according to the machinations of our own understanding? and take his kindness as control or kindness as conquering or kindness as craftiness or cunning or anything else. That is to get God badly wrong. Now of course we're going to meet up with God in his anger if we do that. But the prime response that we make to God's kindness should be that we don't want to go down that way. And we want to think rightly of him. We want to come away from those ideas that lead us to think that God is not kind and to repent and to live for him. After all, the Lord Jesus showed us the great kindness of God even more than David did. He died. So those who have misunderstood him in the past can come back And be eternally a part of his kingdom. Where, if you read Ephesians uh, 2, you find out that God raised up in the heavenly places that his eternal kindness might be seen to us. That is the view of God that he wants us to have forever. That is what we'll experience. If only we respond to that kindness and don't mistake it for anything else. That's an important thing for us to learn. About God's kindness, and particularly, not just in 2 Kings, but in the New Testament, as well in Romans chapter two, verses four and five. Then, what about this other um, truth about God's being kind? It is interesting, is it? If we're part of a church uh, circle, if we've had a church upbringing in the past, it is just easy to just say, "Yeah, I know that God is kind." I know that uh, um, this is what God is like because I sung hymns about it in church when I've gone. Isn't it easy, though, for us to sound as if we are David's envoys? In other words, we know about David's kindness and we, or God's king's kindness and we want to take it out to other people so they know as well. But really, we're more like the Ammonites. That is... We don't trust God's kindness. And the levels of our joy, the levels of our generosity can betray that we think that actually God is more into the takeaway business. That's what the Ammonites thought. And so although we claim to be Christians, we can actually be those who are more Ammonite in the way we are suspicious of God rather than trusting of him. And there's a warning here for us as well. But thirdly, I think there's another aspect of God's kindness that we need to understand. And that is the fact that uh, we, on this estate as a church, want to be like the envoys of David and take news of God's kindness to the people who live on our estate. What's the message for us? If you've understood what happened to the envoys it is that it is likely that we will be humiliated. And it may not be quite as embarrassing as the kind of experience suffered by King David's envoys, but nonetheless, it is a reality, isn't it? Sometimes you come away from a door and a visit feeling really embarrassed that people have said things about our King that are just plainly not true and we feel so sad as we walk away. Well my friends, it is important isn't it for us to understand what our King is like. Irrespective of how people treat us and how people might even humiliate us, isn't it enough for us to know that our King is kind to us? Isn't that our comfort? and therefore even though people might embarrass us and humiliate us he nonetheless has it in his purposes that we should be given our full dignity when we are presented to him and so he treats us like kings and he does all in his power to give us the dignity that he wants us to have in his presence How it may be that others are unkind and misunderstand but the kindness of God's king to us should not be in doubt and that's why we keep going but those are important things I think for us to hold on to and retain and pray over Uh, there might be uh, some uh, things we want (coughs) to come back and think more about and talk about we'll have some questions but let's first take a minute And you talk to God about your own response to the kindness of God's King. And maybe ask for his help to be willing to suffer humiliation to make him known. Let's take a moment, a minute to pray privately and then I'll pray and we'll take questions after that. Well, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you for the kindness of King David, a mirror of the kindness of the Lord Jesus. And we would love this whole estate around us to become convinced about that, that they might follow him and trust him and love him. And we pray that your Holy Spirit will work to that end. And we pray that those who are broken-hearted in bereavement or in any other form of need may experience the arrival of envoys from the King to help them to understand your great comfort and ability to help. But we pray, Lord, that for us who take the news and who often therefore might well be humiliated every time we go out in some way in some degree, please would you help us to rejoice ourselves in the kindness of our King that we might be willing to take any amount of humiliation from those who reject Him. And we pray that for the glory of His name. Amen. Amen.